out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the rock legend Graham Parker, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Has a new album coming out September 2023, titled Last Chance to Learn the Twist. And this is coming out on Big Stir Records. And there's been several singles already, including It Mattered to Me. It's a brilliant new album. There's also some live dates coming out, um, organised and planned for the autumn 2023, just in case you're listening to it in the future. So this is the interview, so after several minutes of interest and but slightly casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Graham, it's over to you. Um, very uh, simple, very boring. I was 12 years old, going on 13, and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones came along. That right. will do it. That will do it nicely, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, we listened to... Um, uh, the transistor radio before that, you know, it was like a piece of furniture or whatever it was, the wireless set, I, I don't know. And um, I heard, you know, all of the great American stuff from Bing Crosby to Doris Day and Danny Kay and liked that a great deal, um, actually, in its own way. Um, and then um, I think my older cousin, that sort of period of time just before I was 13, they, they, there was the Elvis Presley and the Buddy Holly. You know, there was that that, that era and the, the, um, that pop and, and that. I mean, whatever I heard of Elvis Presley wasn't rock and roll. I mean, mm. that, that was something I had to discover later that he'd actually made rock and roll records that were really quite good, actually. You know, the very early singles. Yes. You heard the yes. commercial stuff from him instantly. So none of that appealed to me very much. But um, my age group, that 12, 13, 1962 into 63, we got our own music. And that came from the, you know, the beat music. Basically, the Beatles, the Stones, and all of those, all of those acts that followed, you know, the more yes. kinks, the who again, goes on and on and on. Um, so that's it's a very simple story. Really, it's a simple, very, it's a simple, it's a very simple story. But then when you got to sort of 7, 16, 17, did you were you really sort of get were you in line and sort of um I was going to say vibing, but that sounds just weird. <laughs> were you were you kind of uh, kind of getting a little bit into this sort of the counterculture, the hippie period, the the sort of psychedelic world of as you moved into 1966, 67, which is the summer of love, isn't it? And Sergeant Pepper and and you know you yeah. suddenly had Hendrix, you know Jefferson Airplane, the Doors were appearing. Did you because you would have been that perfect age where you know the music of when you're 16 is the music that really. Deep, you know, cuts deep into the DNA, doesn't it? Did you did you veer into that world that you were going to, you know, yes, smoke drugs and live in a community and sort of just um, sort the world out? That happened a bit later when I was eighteen and left home and went to the island of Guernsey and lived there for um, a year plus, maybe. You know, at that age, a year is a very long time. Um, before that, I was totally a, a, a moddy boy, as we called ourselves, which was, you know, a, a proto-skinhead look. And um, I was obsessed with, basically, if you weren't black and didn't play the saxophone, I wasn't that interested. I mean, it really, it was it was basically soul music, full-on, Tamla, 
everything to do with that, uh, mixed with Jamaican ska and going to these clubs that were even in those days called discos. We're talking 64, 65, maybe 66. I mean, I heard a cousin gave me an Otis Redding album when I was 14. Right. And I know I already had the first four tops album, the one with Baby I Need Your Loving in. Uh, Baby I Need Your Loving, that big, big song it was, and 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 very different from what they came up with a bit later with the Reach Out, I'll Be There. Yes. Um, very lush, a lot of strings. And that and the Otis Redding, Otis Blue album, Otis Blue, Otis, Otis Sing Souls, which he did a lot of covers on. I was like 14 and the cousin gave me that. He was moving and you couldn't carry everything with you in those days for some reason. And um, I that 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 was it, man. I was completely obsessed with everything that was to do with soul, Motown, and uh, and then you know some of the scar crept into things um, and blue beat. Yeah. Um, and and so by the when the summer of love was happening, if that was indeed '67, which I think was the, um, I was a little younger and and it didn't really. You know, I missed it until I was 18. Once I was 18. And I lived in Guernsey. Then I, I discovered that every all these these freaks. I, well, I I had long hair because I was obsessed by then with the white blues bands. Peter Green was my idol. Right. When I was like seventeen, going into sixteen, maybe, um, going into eighteen, and uh, you know, I see Chicken Shack all the time. Savoy Brown. They played in the suburbs. These people. You know, it was amazing. And yeah. you got black acts. You got black American acts. The people who were basically almost our heroes you know the people who wrote the book the blues the blues acts from america sunny terry brownie mcgee and you know people like that were kind of you know amazing blues guitarists albert albert king or whatever freddie king i think those people were touring in the, like the suburbs of england and i was obsessed with peter green and fleetwood mac and that period and i i, heard, I saw the band free with about 20 people watching them Yes. And although they weren't, they were they were obviously progressing on blues. They were they were doing something different, but it was so yeah, it was bluesy. The roots of it were similar. So by the time I got to, to Guernsey, and I'm just about turning eighteen, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, you know, um, I'm, I'm meeting all these people who were listening to, I don't know, that Pink Floyd, I suppose, and and uh, stuff that I dismissed as pretentious white music made by middle class people. Yes. which you know probably was but um it you know so it took uh it took psychedelic drugs to suddenly listen to it in a different way no question about it that's the truth um you know the elasticity of the brain changes and you are now into a stereo sort of a stereoscopic world instead of a mono world yes and uh so i was definitely uh in trance i mean the the court of the crimson king i mean hello uh the incredible string band then there was Jethro Tull, Tull appeared and, and were part of this. But there was all of that stuff that opened up to me, and I couldn't listen to a 4-4 beat. No. Like a straight – I couldn't listen to it. It was like, no, thank you. That's over. That's the past. I mean, you have to think of, of youth being, you know, fashion. There was fashion yes. involved. But in in this case, it involved changing your entire state of consciousness. It involved that. So it was very powerful and very important. And – um uh at that time I'd, I'd already played guitar i dabbled since i was since the beatles because we all got musical instruments 
you know, off of our cousins who handed them down because they didn't play them anymore when, when I was 12 and 13, you know, and had the Beatles impersonation look. But now I got serious because also with those psychedelic acts and those progressive acts, there was um, James Taylor, the first James Taylor album, 1968. Mm. And so that kind of joined with it. So it, it also thought like, well, you could have all that psychedelic stuff going, but you could also be a singer-songwriter and finger-pick guitar and learn things like Bert Yance and all those great folk artists were already doing years ago that we'd also heard, you know. Yes. Those people, they people has entered my consciousness years before this, Um um, there's so many acts like that, you know. Um, and so uh, the psychedelic period was extremely uh, uh, insightful and useful. And, uh, did you, um, did you, you know, get yeah, into people? How... Did you get into people like, is it Davy Graham, who was a guitarist at that period as well as Bert Yanks? He did an amazing song called, yeah. is it Angie, I think, which was his favorite. Angie. And Yes, that was required learning. I can still play a bit of Angie to this day. The right. finger pick where you drop down and play the bass notes and the top notes as well at the same time. I can still stumble through a little bit of that. Yeah, that was um, that was all part of the palette of it. You know, the, the, this this amazing world to be in, to be growing up when the Beatles came along. Yes, because you, 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 you mentioned the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, but there were other bands like, is it Comus? And then there was the third ear band that came along, which there took kind of folk to a progressive height. Did 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 you get very kind of excited and uh, turned on with that kind of sound? Well, it's one of those things where, you know, particularly somewhere like Guernsey, records have to make their way over there sometimes, a bit slowly. You know, I remember when John Lennon's... Um, uh, a sort of EP single, Cold Turkey, came across on the ferry with somebody, you know, and we looked at the cover. I yes. remember looking at the cover in a cafe just coming up on acid, and it was like a skull, and I, the skull is, like, moving. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, wow, whoa. John Lennon made it move, probably, you know, but no, it wasn't. Uh, it, was a, it was, you know, it was psychedelic drugs. But, so it, there were there were one of the bands and the first group of heads, as we call them, freaks that I hung out with. One of the records they had was um, uh, David Peel and the Lower East Side. Now, if you check him out, David Peel, I think it was David Peel and the Lower East Side. John Lennon got hit to them and hung out with him a bit. He this was America. Uh, this was this was around '68, even before maybe. Yes. And if you hear it, what you're hearing is punk. That's what you're hearing. It was like acoustic punk. And somehow the first group of freaks I hung out with had that record, as well as Steve Miller Band, Children of the World, uh, Moody Blues, you know, the Children for Our Future, yes. Future or whatever, um, you know, King Crimson, all that stuff I got turned on to. They also strangely had this David Peel on the Lower East Side. Did he do so a song it, called Marijuana? He did, yes. It went marijuana, and he had a kind of lisp, a New York kind of lisp. I like marijuana, you like marijuana, yeah. we like marijuana too. It was punk. And any, any young people or older people who missed him, check it out. You're hearing punk way before even, you know, Iggy Pop, I presume. I don't know. Maybe yes, absolutely. It was, it was raw, and at the same time, you know, he was like an anarchist 
stoner, you know, at the same time, up against the wall, and there's a very bad word there I won't say, with a, <laughs> beginning with an M, up against the wall, M, da, da, up against the wall. It was amazing. It could have been a London guy. Yes. It's a New York accent with a sort of lispy voice. Well worth checking out for a bit of a history lesson in the fact that they, things always go much further back than you ever think. You know? Yes, absolutely. Because there was there was a brilliant film by uh, on a guy called Danny Fields that I was really you know thought was just beautifully put together. He did the Doors and um, Nico and and Iggy Pop as well. He was part of that scene. He was always mm-hmm. kind of discovering bands, but then somehow it all went terribly wrong. So he ended up with no money. But he mentions that song <laughs> by David Peel and the fact that I think the record companies were a bit confused. Like, oh God, that sold so many records. We don't understand it. Perhaps we're not really, gonna <laughs> yeah. be, you know, they they were very like what do we do yeah. this, this guy's making us money but we don't understand this music anymore well, they, we... they didn't understand joe meek as a producer either did they no that's absolutely true yes absolutely he, he was disruptive in what he did making records you know with the drums in his bathtub and god knows what he was doing it was brilliant you know yes Absolutely. So when you got to sort of 18 to 20 you know and the and the, the end of the 60s came along did you feel, because actually that's kind of still quite, even though at the time you think one thinks, you know, you know it all, but then when you find a 20-year-old, you think, my God, you're so young. Um, but then, you know, you, you know Morrison, Hendrix, um, Joplin died, Brian Jones died the year before, Altamont, and the hippie dream was gone. You know, all those people like Barry Miles and IT Magazine and the Oz Trials. Yeah. And, you know, did it did it feel a bit like, oh, this 70s is a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? Where, what do we do? Oh, we've got Gary Glitter. That's find <laughs> <laughs> well um yeah no by the time at least 72 came around i realized uh what prog rock was now a very flatulent uh smug it was it was almost like britain in those 70s almost you know into the mid 70s frankly there was this certain um audience smugness and critic smugness to a certain extent of well, this this music cannot be progressed any further. It's been done, and and um, that was my attitude was um, actually to go back, to go forward, basically right. to go back. And I, and I I'd returned after tra- then I did the Moroccan trip of mine, which I came back from Guernsey, got some made some money in a factory, and then went to. Uh, to France and Paris and hung out there for a while. And all the time I was playing, finger-picking and writing songs, and they were singer-songwriter songs. They were gradually moving away from the psychedelic references where you write a song in three parts with three different time signatures, you know, and call it spring, summer, and winter, you know. uh, I was gone from that, really, and getting into all those roots from, you know, all those other influences. And when I got back to England, I was about uh, 21, I guess, when I, by the time I'd done with the Moroccan thing and I lived in Gibraltar for a bit, you know, joined a band that were very psychedelic still. I thought this is this is gone now. I want, you know, I want this music to be what it was, a fashion, and to move on and go somewhere else. But so all I did was write songs and, yeah. and, and in, a, in a style, more of James Taylor. But then I started to maybe listen to Radio 1 and hear songs like Can't Hurry Love again, you know, from my from my youth. And also the mixed up with like Eddie Cochran, because you'd always hear the hits, you know, yeah. in between new hits, you would hear the oldies. And I got very excited again, as if I was 14 or 15, discovering all that stuff for the first time. 
And um, my writing kind of started to uh, express that. And so, you know, long story short, by the time I got to 74, I was writing stuff that had a lot of the influences of the past in what might be called, uh, some of it might be called Americana now, or Roots Rock. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it came a lot from soul music and uh, and a lot from the singer-songwriters and, um, you know, there are lots of over there. And then Van Morrison, I started hearing the Van Morrison records from Astral Weeks and Tupelo Honey especially. And that was hugely inspiring. I thought, well, this guy's quite anonymous, really. Those records were coming out, going into the top 30 in England, dropping out, probably going very nowhere, not much in America. He wasn't successful in com big commercial terms, but he was he was earning a living. It was like you could earn a living getting into the middle of the chart set because vinyl records sold. Yes. Know? And uh, it, that was inspiring because he's a soul singer, Van Morrison, you know. So I thought um, I was kind of like, a, a, you know, in a field of one for doing that stuff. And then I got a record deal because of that, because Nigel Grange has got a phonogram, heard a track and recognized that there wasn't anything quite like this around, even though it's got huge precedence in the past. You yes. know, obviously. Nothing original, you know. I, I, I'm writing original songs, and they have an original originality. But I'm not. I'm reinventing the same wheel, though. I yes. always was. Absolutely, because yeah. you had, the, you know, we had that kind of interest in sort of the the rise of sort of the heavy rock scene. I suppose Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and people like that. And then there was the prog rock world with Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harvest. Glam had sort of been and gone. Mark Boland was waning. But then there was like you mentioned that kind of the roots kind of music with people like, like you mentioned James Taylor. But there was also Neil Young, wasn't there? And then Joni Mitchell's. You know, exactly. Blue and Court and Spark came out and then the Eagles started to appear. And then yep. that kind of transition with Fleetwood Mac and that first album with their their, their kind of rumours lineup, though the one before rumours. So did you did yeah. you kind of enjoy the kind of the art of songwriting and being a bit more concise with language? Well, yeah, I did. And uh, talking of uh, your era of Bowie and, uh, you know, uh, um, I, I mean, I saw Tyrannosaurus Rex when they were called that with the guy Mickey Finn sitting cross-legged, you know, at the Reading University, and Bolan very much doing the hippie freak thing, really. Yes. And then he, the same thing happened to him that sort of happened to me, but obviously before, before I, I got a career. He decided, you know, this is all okay, but we've been staring at our navels a bit too much, perhaps, you know, and he wanted to be a rock and roller. And suddenly he comes up with Banger Gone. <laughs> with Chuck Berry riffs, right? Yes. And it's like, when I saw that, I thought, you know, I'm a long way from it, but I'm on the right path. Yes, okay? absolutely. This is what we need. And David Bowie was Ziggy Stardust. I mean, come on. It was like this guy, you can tell he's an old acid head. Listen to his lyrics. You know, freak out in a moon age daydream. Hello. You know, the whole thing, this surrealistic lyrics. But he's doing it as a pop song, a rock and roll song. Suffragette City, it's, it's rock and so these people were tremendously inspiring. All of those, those uh, the glam and the the sweet made great singles, you know. Oh, yes, know. Slade, Slade were fantastic, but you could tell the old hippies like Boland, of course, and and, and Bowie, you, you could tell they'd been there, and they were injecting it now into three minute pop songs. And I thought, well, I'm on the right track because I was going that way. But it was more rootsy. I was never going to sing in an arch English, English accent. No. That wasn't going to be me. I was going to be a soul man. 
till the end, presumably. And I guess I still kind of am because I think, you know, rock and roll should generally be sung in an, in, in an American accent. Like, you know, that's generally my feeling. Uh, exceptions, of course, a few brilliant exceptions like, you know, Ian Drury. He could do English and do it well. Bowie. Bowie could do this arch English thing and do it tremendously well. His Anthony uh, Newley moment. The Anthony Newley moment was brilliant, yes. When it came out, the laughing gnome, yes, it was like, oh, man, because I liked Anthony Newley as well. I knew he was clever. I knew he was on to something. But Bowie went all that way. He went way, way into it, didn't he? It was great. It was fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, that was part of his growing into a growing period, you know, and all of these weird things that, that, you know, they don't lead you astray. They lead you forward in a way. And um, so, yeah, I, I like that period when suddenly these exciting groups that are, used to be old sort of freaks a few years before were now on top of the pop. So I thought that was great. So because I did an interview with Richard Strange and he said when he started, you know, Doctors of Madness, he was like two years too early for punk, but everybody in the audience was going to went on to be, you know, punk. Did you also kind of start to sort of notice people like, you know, Richard and the Doctors of Madness and that kind of, did you feel like you were part of a bit of a scene, even though you might not know each other that well, but kind of checked each other out thinking oh that's interesting they're they're coming in from a different a slightly similar ang angle well frankly when i I'd, I'd written the songs that became howling wind my first album um i i didn't really the word punk in when when that album came out april 76 the word punk might have been a sort of thing in the back of the music papers um i that i didn't understand I didn't really understand, and I didn't listen to anything much that came from that. And if I did, I dismissed it. I was, because sometimes you have to have complete tunnel vision and faith that you are, you're the business, and that's it, and all these other people are pretenders. Yes. Yeah, so, so I, I really didn't pay that much attention. I thought I'm rewriting soul music, some of the greatest music in the world, and some of the and stuff that leaned into rockabilly. And uh, I was using reggae grooves, Don't Ask Me Questions, Howling Wind. So I didn't really take anything much seriously um, that anybody else was doing uh, at that very point in time. And, uh, you know, I thought punk was something, you know, a few sort of middle class journalists in the NME or something, wanted to slum it with a CBGB's crowd, you know, and were being terribly pretentious with all this bollocks. Like, no, I, I just didn't take it seriously at all. And um, and then my manager, after having success with me, Dave Robinson, starts a record label called Stiff Records. Yes. So I'm on my I'm on my second album, and he's signing what I thought was all these losers in London who couldn't get arrested. And suddenly, they become known as New Wave <laughs> or Punk. And he signed a band called The Damned, who were like the sort of supposedly the first English punk, punk band of that, that wave yes. in the 70s to be signed. And I suddenly saw this. I thought, how the hell did this happen? All this rubbish all this trash is now is now more successful than me, or, or or at least creeping up on me. Although the damned, of course, opened for me like everybody did at one point. <laughs> um, so it was quite a shock to see this actually being taken seriously. Yes, 
me by my own manager, whose head was now totally in the stiff records and not in the Graham Parker and the rumor. So we were like making our third album and punk rock is hitting. And then uh, it was quite interesting. The Sex Pistols record came out October 77. I do remember some of the steps of this and the dates, some of the sort of vague dates. And I thought it was fantastic. You know, I thought it's brilliant unless you, I put it on my good stereo. It sounded awful. You wanted right. to hear it on the radio, on a badly tuned radio. It sounded yes. great. And I thought they were an amazing comedy band. I thought Johnny Rotten was the funniest, one of the a modern music hall entertainer. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. He did. Like, he Ian, that. Drew, like Ian, Ian Drury was as well. Yes. I think so I, I thought of it that way. They made me laugh. I, I mean, I roared with laughter when I saw him on top of the pop singing vacant, you know, it's like, oh, that's pretty <laughs> clever. And uh, so I so I kind of liked it much more then. And polystyrene, I thought, probably some genius in there somewhere. She was very good. Yes. And did, and did you, when you were doing your heat treatment, the second album, you went to Rockfields, didn't you? The famous Rockfield studio to record that. What was your experience of Rockfields staying there and writing and recording that album? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was like, well, I, I felt like I made it for my first album by making a big impression in a complete musical void. Um, and then then I was, there I am now, uh, recording in this classic studio, and it's in the country, you know, like you like you do when you've made it. You go to the country to yes. hang out, and you know, and get it together. And it was a bit like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's people making fabulous food every night and cooking for us and it was like well this is yeah this is it man it's, it's it's all on and this is good i loved it um i had great great experiences i mean a very privileged life from the moment i just signed a record deal i mean yes. that's what it is. don't don't let go of that no i mean absolutely. I, I should be a supermarket you know second manager in a supermarket sorry really that's what I should be doing. And perhaps a lot of people hear my music and think, yeah, you should have been, mate. But that's that's another story. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a privileged life, and it's um, you never know what's coming around the corner. I mean, you just don't know. True. This is very true, as we, we yeah. learn, as we get older, blimey. But, yeah. um, one of the great songs of that period, Don't Ask Me Questions, can you remember how that came about and, and the inspiration? Was it one of those ones that came together in five minutes or one that you'd been working on for years and then finished it off and went, oh, that's quite, you know. Well, I probably wrote that. My, my first album came out, as I said, April 76 here. Uh, I got the record deal, I suppose, in 75, was rehearsing with the rumour in the summer of 75, that song was written probably around somewhere 73 or 74, along with um, uh, some of the other Howling Wind stuff. A lot of other stuff I was writing that got rejected by me, I realised wasn't up there with songs of that calibre. And Back to School Days would have been a very important one to me because I'd sort of written something purely rock and roll, rockabilly almost, without being a student of it at all. You know, I didn't study things that, you know, I wasn't one of those guys who knew all the musicians on records. I, You know, there were some things I picked up and liked and, and understood and still do to this day who did what, but largely not. And so Don't Ask Me Questions was written in a straight 4-4 beat at first, because the chords, I'd, I'd borrowed them from Neil Young's Southern Man. Right. Used like, a, it may not have been a B minor to a G, but it was the equivalent of that. It was that Southern Man. It was going from 
the minor to the major. And I use that in the, the song, Don't Ask Me Questions. You know, Crimson Autograph, that's on the minor, then to G, is what we leave behind. I, it was just one of those influences you pick up but doesn't sound anything like the Neil Young song because it's a typical, but I was still discovering these classic chord sequences and classic things and uh, also be, being totally untrained, inventing my own way of doing it and coming up with weird time, time signatures like the introduction to Don't Ask Me Question is like a funeral dirge mm -hmm. and it, the rhythm of it is cut in half which was like, oh, that I know that's clever stuff, and I know that's interesting, and I know it's original. Um, so I had that 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 mixture going on there. So it was written then, but uh, the guy who who helped me put put me in the right direction to meet Dave Robinson and and, and other people in London was a uh, Noel, Noel Brown, who uh, I I you know met in London after putting an ad in the Melody Maker, and he was. The only musician I met who answered the ad, who I thought this guy knows his stuff, and he was a real R&B player, a real you know he knew rock and roll backwards, you know way way more than I did, and he heard me play. I was playing "Don't Ask Me Questions" for him, so this is a couple of years before my deal, you know, maybe in '74 probably, before my record came out, and he he said you should play that reggae. Yes. I started doing that because I could play that because the first song I learned on electric guitar was Desmond Decker, 007. I was like right. 15, I think. I was about 15. You know, it was, it's quite an easy groove. I found reggae, ska, you know, and, and blue beat, very easy grooves for me because we were hearing it when we were so young. It's just in the blood, you know. Uh, so that was kind of a natural, really, and that, that really helped that he suggested taking that song away from a 4-4 beat and going that groove with it. And I never looked back from that. And it yes. became, you know, a song that people like to this day. And, and uh, lots of people remember me from that who may not have followed through with, with anything else. You know. Yes. And when you, I mean, it's always interesting how, you know, because obviously you're, you're having the zeitgeist period of, you know, one album a year here, sort of burning yourself in, burning the candles at both ends. But when you came to doing Squeezing Out Sparks, you had another producer, didn't you, Jack? Ni Nietzsche, Nietzsche? Jack Nietzsche, yeah, Jack Nietzsche. Um, how did that come together? Well, that was, a, yeah, that was kind of weird because, well, Nick Lowe produced Howling Wind and he sort of did a few tracks on Stick to Me, which was, Basically, Mutt Langer started that off, and, and I think, uh, well, no, somebody else did that. No, not Stick to Me. I mean, Heat Treatment was Mutt Langer, basically. A couple of tracks got, didn't work and were rescued by Nick, or one of them was Back to All Love. And then I, uh, then I moved, and then by the time I got Squeezing Out Sparks, it was basically one of these things where um, I think simultaneously Dave Robinson, who's still my manager, even though he was more into stiff than me, was – you know, he 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 might it might have popped up in his across his transom the name Jack Nietzsche. The reason being, I think he he produced the Mick Deville record, right? And one of the songs on it was called Spanish Stroll, and it was being played about the same time as Jonathan Richmond's um, Roadrunner. Yeah, and these were widely seen as sort of punk new wave, almost the first singles. Yes, this is true. That could be called new wave. And and uh, I like that uh, both of those singles, especially the Spanish Troll. There was nothing else I ever heard by um, Mick Deville that I liked ever again. Just that one track. It had a pop sensibility to it, and I realised New Wave ha ha was you know 
by the time 79, by the time that record came out, New Wave and Punk, a lot of those people were now sleeping on friends' couches. And they were a hit in 77. <laughs> and, <they> were, <laughs> and I was still like blazing through doing, doing very well, especially in America. Because you've got to understand, a lot of punk and new wave didn't really take off to the level of playing theatres. No, in America. Was, so did you go to CBGBs and Max's Kansas City and and clubs like that to begin with? No, I didn't until I was already sort of popular and playing better places. I went to CBGBs, and of course, it is a crap hole you expect it to be. Yes. And I thought, well, I'm glad I missed this. <laughs> and Max's Kansas City, the same. I sort of jumped that quickly. We went into sort of theatre style. So I thought, well, I'm glad I missed it. I didn't need it. I played some, some real dives. Everybody does, but not many. Um, but yeah, that was that. That Jack Nietzsche's name popped up. So I just thought, well, it would be nice to trim the sound down because we were a very complex band, me and the rumor. Yes. The music is very dense. It is nothing like New Wave, nothing like punk, which is very sparse, always was sparse. It was not like that at all. We had two keyboards. We had, you know, a string section on Stick To Me. We had girls singers on this. Actually, Kokomo, we had those... We had all that density. It was nothing like those things at all. It was just that my attitude was like that because I was so intense with the vocal style on Howling Wind. You know, that's what kicked off the thing and still gets me lumped in with some of that punk new wave stuff. But that wasn't what I was doing really at all. So, so, so squeezing out spars with Jack Nishi managed. He he was he was great because he wanted to uh, undensify the rumor as much as I did, in a way, so that we could be more modern yes. and a bit more current. I wanted. I, I wrote these songs, and they, they had more of a pop sensibility or some, a rock sensibility as opposed to a rock and roll sensibility. They weren't songs that, that, was, that, that swung. They weren't swing like White Honey, like Heat Treatment. These are swing. These are yeah. swing music. They weren't like that at all. Um, so I think I was reacting to the times the modern music of, of of new wave and punk, you know, there was a lot to react to. And I think I reacted to it to a certain extent in staying away from swing, staying away from anything that was like R&B and anything like that. And and um, it was kind of subconscious, but it was easy to write the songs in a way. They came out and I thought, well, I've just moved somewhere else altogether for this album. And um, Jack Nietzsche was the perfect Perfect guy to do it because he wanted to thin out the rumors excesses. Right. He, he, yeah, he was good at that. Trim it out. Because a few years ago, there was a brilliant documentary on the beat, Beats. I don't know, Beats. It's that um, Apple kind of the headphone thing with um, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. So I, I became obsessed with Jimmy Iovine. And a few people I've interviewed have met Jimmy um, when he was quite um, a bolshy person who, I don't know, some some extraordinary stories of his kind of megalomania as he got bigger in life yeah, i'm months. sure <laughs> and he was yeah. your producer yeah so he then went and produced um your next album wasn't he but because he done he sort of worked a bit with john lennon then he done bruce springsteen and then eventually you two and then became quite um the character so what was he like when you met him in 19 was it 1979 1980 well i'd actually met him before that he came to stiff records offices and i think dave's partner jake riviera might have introduced me to him no dave introduced me to him and i just sort of didn't know who he was and just sort of went oh yeah all right and jimmy was like he said to me years later he said 
I didn't know what to make of it. I, he thought, I guess that's what punk punk is like. They don't like nobody likes you. So yeah, I was completely dismissive. But Dave didn't say this guy wants to produce you. He's done that, but and then he did "Damn the Torpedoes," I believe, by Tom Petty. You see, uh, in his own right as a producer and not an engineer, you know. So uh, that that got, um, I guess, Dave's attention again. And this time he said, "You know, Jimmy Iovine loves you. He wants to produce you because a lot of these guys actually wanted to produce me years before I met them. Right? They heard me. They really wanted to." Um, uh, and he was one of them. So I, I just thought, all right, well, he's just done this Tom Petty record. I'm hearing tracks. It sounds good. You know, and, uh, and I just casually said, yeah, let's do, let's do it with this guy. And um, that's where I basically found out that the guy who does all the work producing the albums is the engineer. Right. Because <laughs> Jimmy, he was, I mean, I liked him. We got on, we got on well. He was just, you know, he was a bit of a prickly up his own up his own kind of guy with his own self-importance. But quite frankly, I was as well. I still was young enough to be self-important about my brilliance and every, all this nonsense. And he was, I don't know, he... <laughs> but, you know, the record came out and the band hated it. They absolutely hated it. Um, uh, I, I liked it. I thought it was good. A lot of people love it to this day. A lot of GP fans absolutely yes. love it. So to me... It's just another record. It's, I just think of this as a stream. It's a stream. There's a stream in front of me. I'm chucking a pebble in the stream. Yes, it absolutely. Swings, it, it swings around in the current. It swings around the current for a brief period of time. Then it gradually goes downstream. And I'm thinking, okay, next. And I'm yes. writing. And, you I'm know, all, that's what I think. And, and Endless Night. Which is or, or in, yeah, which is the first track on side two features Bruce Springsteen. How did this? And this is also for a film, isn't it? Called is it called Cruising? Yes, Cruising. So how did that come together? And did Bruce already know your music as well at this stage? Oh, Bruce um, uh, was a huge fan. He came to gigs. He said in, in a famous line of his, "Grandpa in the room is the only act I'd pay money to see right now." That was that was the Bruce line that still gets used to this day, uh, but you know whatever. And he came to he came to a show and was just enthusiast enthusiastic about me. He's a big supporter. He appeared in my documentary saying one of really nice things about me. And I've met him a number of times and and I played with him on stage at Asbury Park in the in the parking lot at a festival. And so Jimmy mentioned him, and I'd been I'd been bumping into Bruce at about two in the morning, coming back from sessions, because he was staying at the Navarro Hotel on Central Park's South, where I was staying, and he'd be hanging out outside with this guy John Landau, right. who of course became his manager. And we'd say, "Hey Bruce, how are you doing?" I said, "Yeah, I'm doing a record with Jimmy," and we we chat and stuff, because Bruce is like a to me, a, I think he is just a working musician. That's that's what he is. Yeah, and that's that's who he is, and I think uh, if you said that about him, you'd be giving him the greatest compliments. Mm. Okay, he's a megastar. Every, great, everyone loves Bruce. Fine. The most important thing is that guy is just a working musician. I mean, take the word "just" out of it. The most important thing is to be a working musician, be good at it, and uh, that's what he takes seriously, you know. And so Jimmy just called, called him up and said, uh, "Yeah, Graham's up for it. Have you singing?" Yeah, it was not a big deal to me because Bruce was just like a... Yes, absolutely. At that stage, he 
Um, and, did, um, and was your American audience, because you've got a lot of American contacts at this stage, was that kind of, did they look at you as somebody who was going to crack that market, as they say in marketing terms? Well, the, the, the record companies, of course, gave me way too much money. I mean, way too much money in the hope that they were going to crack it, but they never quite did. Squeezing Out Sparks did the best and lifted me into a whole different era area of, of fans. And we were smashing it out there. I mean, when people think, you know, old oh, punk, that really knocked you back. It didn't. Every record I made sold more than the last one. Before punk and through punk and out the other end of punk until Squeezing Out Sparks kind of hit the maximum. And we were... We were touring around America for months and months, and you know, with the horn section, with two tour vans, two tour uh, buses, one for the crew, and the and we had lights. We had this whole thing, and and people say, "Oh, punk had taken." I was like, "No, no I don't remember." In 1979, when I was touring for Squeezing Out Sparks, I, I don't remember punk. There was no punk bands on the road. No, absolutely. There was. They're just sleeping on their friend's couch and they're gone. It was me and the rumor who were out there smashing it, doing the 2,000, 3,000 seaters and selling out. So it's all this is all mythology, but I never sold a big amount of records. I kept selling steadily enough that record companies kept me on. Hmm. And then when one deal finished, another record, foolish enough, came along and paid me way too much money. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, if, if they want to keep me, give me money in the hope that I'll become a superstar, fine. Yes. I'll just take it. Because you make really good records and you have a really great time. Absolutely. So one thing I did notice that that sometimes, you know, there's a five-year narrative with a lot of bands, especially, yeah, you know, there's the 12-month honeymoon period, you know, and especially in the 80s, which is the decade that I loved. You know, they get the single John Peel play it, they get the John Peel session, that first album, you know, yeah. they do they do the tour, you know, the sort of the the small circuit in the transit van, then they get the second album, possibly a third, and then it's kind of pretty tired. And the other thing is that. One, you know, a lot of people in one decade like have really on that zeitgeist and then the next decade it can be a little bit more like, blimey, I've got to kind of start again. And there's another wave of 16, 18-year-olds who have come along who want to kind of have their own thing. So how was your kind of early 80s after that kind of period? We had Thatcher in 79. We got the you oh, know, yeah. the, Fal the Falkland War, the Miner Strike, Greenham Common. The landscape suddenly felt quite different in the 80s, 82, 83. What was it like as an artist thinking, blimey, I'm, I'm, I've got to do it again now, but somehow what I've just done, it almost doesn't count anymore because it's a, it's a whole new gang in town. Yeah, well, the 80s um, sound kind of took over everyone a bit, you know, even even the best of mm -hmm. us. You know, the search for some mythical drum sound, which was really <laughs> the producer's search and not the artist's search. That was the thing, but we got pulled into it. Um, but I, I fared very well because I, I, you know, America, they, the critics there and the public, you know, to whatever extent, they heard another great area, which was my first album, without the rumor, and it was deliberately not going to sound like the rumor because why do that? I wanted different musicians who sounded different, and I got the producer Jack Nietzsche, not Jack Nietzsche, sorry, Jack Douglas who produced John Lennon's Double Fantasy, which was a very slick, seamless record. And I kind of thought I should sound, yeah, great. I'll take Jack Douglas. I want to sound like that. That is not GP in the rumor. No. 
it's it, it's the it it worked very well with temporary beauty uh, songs on that order that were on that particular record. Now the critics in Britain, of course, had killed me and wanted me to stay dead because that's how British critics are. You know, they're a rather bitter and twisted bunch. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, um, so. They, they kind of, I thought, well, I came back and I did tour for another career. I did two nights at, I think it was the um, Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, so, we, you know, there were probably a sellout. But the the audience for me were now firmly in America because America heard that album and didn't blink. They were like four-star review. Yeah. I mean, what did you expect, Graham Parker and the rumour? That was their attitude. The attitude of the British critics was, you know, this this is you know a sellout or some nonsense. When it was just me writing songs, it was the same thing. Yes, absolutely. Same, you know, I wasn't. You know, there was no re- reason to be like spitting fire because I was kind kind of well off. You know, it was the eighties. There was lots of money. It was a. Uh, I I lived in New York City. You know, I mean, it was. Uh, I had a really nice place and. I, so um, you know, I wasn't exactly seething with anger. I was taking part in the eighties money scene, really. <laughs> but it never changed. My writing developed as it would develop, completely organically. And it's it's me on my own. It's always a, I'm in a field of one, and I'm in an area of one. And uh, but you know, I'd got married, and uh, you know, by 1985, you know, had a, a, a child, a young child. So it was you know, you do what you do. You just grow up and you go through life. Um, and America was really, you know, still fond of me very much. So I just concentrated totally on America, yes. really, and, and some Europe and Japan or whatever. Yeah, there was always that mixed in with it, but not much in Britain. No. And uh, I basically lost track with every kind of music in Britain completely and utterly for a, a long while. And um, and even by that time, I wasn't being listening. I wasn't listening to much. I wasn't being influenced by new acts. I was checking some out like, oh, I love Camper Van Beethoven and, you know, the DBs. And I loved a few of those American, basically stuff that was precursor to what would become known as alternative. Oh, so you did know? you get, because, yeah, the Camper Van Beethoven with Take the Skinheads Bowling was a classic. Did you yeah. also like people like Green on Red and early REM? Did they sort of come into your consciousness? I miss Green on Red, but I loved REM. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, they made some fantastic stuff. And there was a show on MTV, despite the fact that MTV, you know, when they first started, they would use videos by me because there was such a small pool of videos. That's what they were. They were they were going to be music television. It was going to be videos. Yes. And uh, they became something else. Actually, they 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 got really bad when the the glam sort of hair bands came along, you know, the Twisted Sister or... the uh, ooh, Bon Jovi. Bon jo- yeah, and it was all that, and, and Warrant, and Strider, and, and all these bands with one Hair metal, and, yes. A bit of hair metal, and it was really so sanitised hair metal, most of it. Um, and uh, so, you know, I really didn't fit in, but my records kept selling regardless, you know. And um, so, I, I, you know, I... But, but but there was a show on MTV. It came on like midnight on Sunday Sunday or something, and it was called 120 Minutes. And I would see, you know, the first Pixies, right? Tune and the first Pixies video and the first and acts, you know, some band called doing a song called Plastic Flowers, and they were obviously like 
doing a sort of a, a sardonic, you know, 60s revival in a way, but, you know, reinventing it. A bit like New Wave did in Britain in, in yes. 77. You know, like a uh, irrever sort of irreverent, really not saying, you know, all oh, these people are our gods, the people who came before us. They were like, no, no, no. We're, re we're, we're the people now. We're reinventing this wheel. And so that, that stuff was on. And I thought, well, there might be hope. There might be hope. And eventually you had to wait for Nirvana or something, you know, really, to come mm -hmm. along for, the, for, the, for it to explode and for people to realize, okay, now we get it, you know. And did you, because, uh, yeah, the, the Nevermind was one of those classic moments. Did, did sort of like the interest or did you find it kind of irritating, you know, the term Britpop with people like Pulp, and, um, you know, you mentioned about singing the English boys, Blur and Damon and Oasis. Did they, any of that music kind of interest you at all, thinking, oh, yeah, I could relate to this more? Well, quite frankly, I didn't see those bands make much of an impact in America. Blur. Oh, no, the they other... didn't. They were terrible. <laughs> no, they didn't seem to make any real sales impact. But Bo Oasis did. Oasis did, definitely, 100%. And my daughter was, you growing up, she loved them. I loved them as well. I liked them. I liked what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And when I heard Blur, you know, I did like it. I thought there was a, some good stuff. But a lot of bands I miss, I, I can't tell you what the Stone Roses sound like to this day. I'm no. sure they're good. I, I don't know. And there were so many things I missed. So many of those bands um, I tended to miss. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wasn't really into following stuff much but uh, i was just carrying on with what i was doing how do i keep trying to get an album a year out basically yes, yeah you know really that's it and uh, so so just fast forward slightly um i'm a big fan of paul rudd and i quite like his films especially on a saturday night when you fancy a little rom-com and he's very good and suddenly this yep. is 40 appears and this amazing film and you you are very much part of this incredible narrative which is like quite boggling. How, how did this kind of come about? Because it's a fascinating kind of, it's a brilliant film. It's one that you would want to watch again. And you're, you are the star of his record, you know, fictional record label. Yeah. No, I th it came about, Jada used one of my songs. He's a big fan, first, let me say, of a million artists. You know, he is, he's a music lover and he likes so many artists. And I happen to be one of them that he's, He's liked over the years. He used one of my songs in a TV show of his, a series called Undeclared, which was a fantastic show, came after a show called Freaks and Geeks, in which you first saw Seth, um, what's his name? <laughs> Seth. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that Seth one. Rogan. That yes. one, yeah. And all those other great people. Uh, Justin, Justin Siegel was in it as well, who had a little role in, in This Is 40. And, um, you know, so so I knew I was on his radar. He used Love Gets You Twisted from Squeezing Out Sparks, as a matter of fact. And Ben Stiller was in the scene as well. That was interesting. And uh, so I had my eye on this guy, and he came up with Knocked Up, which was a very sort of blockbuster in a way. Oh, yes. Uh, and This Is 40 came out, and it was a box office hit. It went to number three. Um, but, it, you know, so it was extremely successful. I was very... I was, you know, blessed. I suppose it was. Just, it was kind of another one of those privileged things where Judd got hold of my publishing company at the time, Primary Wave, and they said Judd Apatow wants to have a chat with you. I said, okay, give him my number, 
you know, call me, call me. So he called me and then I went to New York City, drove down there from upstate New York where I was living and met with him. And um, he just pointed out this 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 needs a, a guy who is self-depreciating humor, uh, you know, who doesn't mind having the, the Mickey take out of, taken out of him, really, who is a guy who's getting signed by this fictional label and basically ruins it by his sheer lack of popularity. Um, and which I said, well, I could do this. You know, you've you found your man. Please don't look any further. Basically, and 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 it happened that everyone else he was signing, you know, Frank Black, Black without the vital ingredient, the Pixies. Hello, he signed a haircut, haircut, haircut one hundred. <laughs> he had all these hacks on that were from the past and worked with their major bands, and so he signed Graham Parker. Now, what I told Judd on that day that I met him was something I never thought would come out of my mouth again, which I'd done about a week earlier before I got the call from him, maybe two weeks. I said, by the way, Judd, I've reformed Graham Parker and The Rumour. We're going to do an album. So why don't you put them in your movie as well? And, and his head went, whoa. He thought I was joking. I said, yeah, I've really... So then a guy was doing a... A guy, Michael Grimalia, Grimalia Brothers, were doing a documentary on me. And... I just told him, you know, can that documentary, I've done what I said I would never do, I've reformed the rumour by almost accident, by accidental email. And the next thing I know, I'm like, I'm bringing them all to New York to do a record. And I'm suddenly, I said, by the way, uh, guys, to the rumour, we're going to be, if this pans out, we're going to be in a Judd Apatow movie as well as making a new album and having a documentary made. So you couldn't have got anything better, really, if you no. wanted a, a nice little bump in your in your life and your that, career. That was, yeah. that was kind of, that was the planets lining up, really, wasn't it, on that one? <laughs> yeah, yes, it really was. It was, I, fun, yes. it was great. It was a beautiful documentary, actually. I can remember there was, um, was one of the members of the librarian, wasn't he, and they had to find him. Andrew Bass, and Andrew the bass player, yeah, he's a librarian. He's been a librarian. He was in in uh, in Pickering, uh, Yorkshire, and before that, I think he worked at the big one here, Greenwich. Library. Right, I think. Yeah, so he he had the library thing going on, which is a keep your day jobs, boy. You know, because he worked in the Thompson Twins, and you know they had some hits. You know, after the rumor. Um, yes, and I I hired him to play on a few of my albums after the rumor as well. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I've gone slightly dark there. Haven't I? It so, has um, gone a bit. There it is. It's back. <laughs> I just changed screens at the time. Yeah. So was that a big thing to bring the rumor back? By the way, for you was or did you feel that there needed to be some completion? I didn't feel anything like that. It was just I, I sort of mentioned to Steve the drummer. You know what? I've been playing my own uh, guitars on my records, and I still want to do that and getting a keyboard player in. But I thought it'd be good to get a rhythm section, like a three-piece, and record that way instead of just me and the drummer and me adding the bass and stuff. So, so I said I thought of you know Steve and Andrew. That'll be good. The the rumor guys just to play on a record. And Steve made a joke about you know well you could get uh, you know Bob and Brinsley and Martin and have a proper band. So he said it as a joke, and I took it seriously. And you went, yes. and I emailed them and said, "How about uh, you guys want to join me and uh, Steve and Andrew uh, and do a, do an album?" And they all said yes. Even Brinsley, who I had to find on the phone because his email wasn't working because he was redoing his house. 
And he said, uh, yeah, okay. And only only later did we all think, what have we just done? The repercussions <laughs> are insane. You know, because you swear blind, well, you're just going to do an album, forget about it. Of course you're not going to tour. And of course you're going to tour. And, uh, you know, and it was just amazing for them when I said, you know, if this pans out, we're also going to be in a Hollywood movie, you know. J- 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 I mean, Judd Apatow is the gold standard, the name of the game in yes. Hollywood. You know, comedic movies with all kinds of other layers of depth going on. And uh, and and so it was, they they thought it would fall through. I thought it would fall through, but it didn't. Judd, Judd was like, no, I want you people. That's it. It's done deal. And did it feel, because you did, did you do one or two albums with them? Two. We did two. two. We did Mystery Glue was the second one, and the first one was Three Chords Good. Yes. Did it feel like some theme? I mean, I'm probably sort of reading an awful lot into this, aren't I? But did it did it feel like a nice opportunity to sort of kind of just have a bit of a chat and a bit of a play again with each other while you're still able to and it's not too, you know, late in the day, so to speak? Or well, it, I... it just by accident, as I say, and it was, you know, just amazing timing that this documentary would come into play in conjunction with a movie. So we'd all get flown to Hollywood first class and all this stuff. And I was at, you know, I was going back and forth doing different scenes. And, uh, it, you know, it was just like a laugh. And when we got into the studio, we played so brilliantly together with all the baggage of the past, all that nervousness, all that pretentious, you know, I'm so good and why is everybody playing this? And, you know, all <laughs> that, you know, difficult going through difficult bits with the songs as if they were made out of China, you know, handling them like this and, and then smashing them and rebuilding them. We didn't do that. We just played and it was, it sounded like Graham Parker and Aruma, you know, a lot more, you know, older. We're not trying to, uh, we're not standing in front of a brick wall going, ah, we're not going to do that we're you know i was like 60 you know those yes. guys, some of the guys. so so everything was um excellent about it excellent yes. about it we took it as as how funny it is to play with each other and as soon as i start playing with those two guitarists it's like we're one guitarist we just lock in uh, you know and everybody just locked into each other without you know, almost minimal amount of work, really. And because I'm so much more experienced now, I'm the I'm the producer of the album, which they wouldn't have seen that coming years ago. That would not have been on their radar, but they they accepted it. And it's me and, and I, got, I had a great engineer, co-producer, Dave Cook, and they loved him. They knew he was on our side. They knew he was good. And so we, we had a blast. Frankly, we had a blast. We did the next record up the road at Rack Studios here, the old Mickey Most studio, uh, and and that was just just the same thing. And we toured, and it was it was all good. Was yes, all good absolutely. Now. That wasn't the Mickey Most studio that he um, pretend possibly sort of had asbestos, which might have killed him. Well, I'm sure that I mean I had asbestos in my attic here in a London flat once, and one day some people turned up and and pulled it all out. Um, so, you know, I'm still breathing, you know, but um, that may well have been part of it. You know, I don't know that story, actually, but I don't see why not. Asbestos is widely used. Yes. No, I do. I do remember sort of reading a bit about Mickey and it's like, you know, he died quite young of a particular lung cancer, which I can't. But it's the one connected it, to asbestos and it, it was it, asbestos. Mes- that- meso- 
the mesolithiona or something, meso something or other. Yes. Yeah. Just, yeah. just don't ask me to spill it. So look, back five years ago, you brought up a, a, one, an album out, which was Clouds, wasn't it? And then you've got this new album, which is out on another label called Big Stir Records. Um, yeah. is, this, is this a new a new label? Sorry, I've just put it on another screen. That's why I keep going dark. So is this a That's new right. label for you? Um, yeah, well, 100% um, Records put out Cloud Symbols. That was me and the Gold Tops. I dubbed the band the name The Gold Tops, which includes Martin Belmont from The Rumour. And, um, um, and they were going to be doing this record as well, uh, but, but on, only on this side of the pond or Europe. I wanted someone else from America. And what happened was one of the uh, key staff members of 100% Records got rather ill and was in hospital. And I had the record made, and it was all set up to be on 100% records in England. And then I needed someone on the other side of the pond. And I tried a few other labels, other, other indie labels, and they were coming, uh, umming and ahhing about it. They weren't, I wanted positivity. And I found this, this uh, something hit my Twitter account called Big Stir Records. Nothing to do with me. I, it just popped up somehow. Something, and I looked at their roster and I thought, well, these people are very eclectic. Yes, <laughs> and they do a, they do a great design job. They've got a whole image thing going here, and they're in Los Angeles. I've never signed, apart from Capitol Records, I've never directly signed with anyone else based in Los Angeles or the West Coast at all. I don't think. And I thought, well, that would be something new. So I, I, I got hold of them and said, well, you, you want to hear a record? To which they were, their jaws dropped. That Graham Parker wants to send them a record. That's how, that's the kind of respect they had and they have for me. And um, they said, we'd love to hear it. And basically, you know, when, uh, they got back to me after hearing it, which took about an hour, and immediately got back and said, this record is superb. I said, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you. <laughs> Let's do a deal. I mean, just say it like it is. Don't um and ah about it. Oh, we got five acts out, you know, yet Brox. I'm not sure we got five, whether we can fit it in. Come on, listen to it. It's superb. That's the, that's the best word. That's the correct word. It is yes. excellent. Just listen to it and say, don't think about any baggage or nonsense. Do you want it on your indie label? You're hardly going to break the bank. I no. Mean, and Big, Big Stir were like, yeah. We we want it absolutely. So it's been exciting working with them. I, li I like I like the cut of their jib, you know. So when did you record the album, or when did you write it and then record it, and where did you record it? Um, well, uh, the, the the lockdown bit slowed us down. I I, I did uh, write and produce two songs from there. Humans are the mutant virus, and uh, and three uh, D printer, which is about being in lockdown and uh, being able to pr uh, print. The, the woman you love or any and bring them to your home. Basically, a bit creepy. Um, humans are the mutant virus, of course. Well, that's true. We are. We, we're yes. the ones who really wreck. We wreck everything, and that's that. Uh, forget about some other little virus thing floating around. You know, that's pretty bad, but we're the worst. So that came out as a single uh, on 100% Rebels. So uh, I was writing through that period, and there, and there were a couple of songs in there. Like a lot of albums, I've had the bones of the songs for 10 years and didn't do anything with them, and suddenly they feel relevant. Suddenly they feel right. So there are brand-new songs that I was writing on the spot, you know, within the last five years with the right. lockdown period. Because what was it? That was 2020. Um, 
So, okay, we're three years, what year is it now? 23. So we're three years out of it. So maybe in a three-year period, I was writing most of those songs yes. that come on, on the new record, which is called Last Chance to Learn the Twist. Yes, absolutely. And um, some fantastic songs. And, and But my favourite one, and probably appeals to my melancholic kind of quality, was Last Stretch of the Road. So so when when did you write that one? Because the lyrics are fantastic, and um, I love the sentiment. Yeah, well, that would have been one of the key songs I wrote, along with uh, the more... Um, a uh, very jazz sort of smooth song. It mattered to me, which is heavy, a heavy emotional song in its way. But uh, last stretch of the road is is very fun, tongue in cheek. Um, you know, there's all these imagery of, you know, you're walking the last stretch of the road, and there's no choir singing for you, there's no holy anything. It's just you're just going to die, mate, and it's going to be, you know, pretty miserable. But there's other people on the road with you. One of them's looking round, waving a bottle because he's Brahms and List. Yes, uh, and uh, you know uh, the road comes up before him. Last chance to learn the twist. Well, it is if you if you realize you get a death sentence by your doctor. You know you got six months. You you know you might want to learn how to do the twist if you missed it. <laughs> the last, so I don't know. So I thought it was a fun song about uh, realism in a way. I'm on the last stretch of the road. I'll be seventy three in November. Right, you know, yes. don't, don't kid yourself. You're on the last stretch of the road, mate. You know, you are. Uh, <laughs> so you got to have a laugh. You better have a laugh now, and you better learn the twist. You I better learn I, the twist. I, I did learn it when I was young, but not for long. I mean, I think if I tried it now, I might pull something. But if I no. knew I was going to die, I'd pull something. Whatever, you know. Yeah, no, don't don't do the twist. Not, but then you know, seventy three sounds quite young compared to dear old Mick, who just hit eighty. So, um, so it's kind of a tricky one, isn't it, really? But then yeah, you you know, the musical yeah. styles are very varied on this album because then bugs, you've got this kind of reggae vibe on that as well. So again, and that's the single I believe is coming out. So where did no, that? That came out already. Yes, that came out because, because it's my usual reggae groove. It's like falling off a log to write it. And I wrote it one night when me and my son were having fireworks on a 4th of July in upstate New York. I scribbled it down right after that. I said, Jimmy, here is the song. And I started playing it on two chords. That's all it is. And he joined in jamming on the guitar. And I, I scribbled down some lyrics, you know, almost the song. And then forgot about it because I thought, well, that's silly. I'm never going to do that. And it kept, because it was so catchy, it kept coming back to me. And so suddenly I, I, I wrote it and wrote it properly and finished it within the last couple of years, really. And mm. I thought, well, I've got to do this. This is fun. It's really good fun. Yes. I've got to get some girls. It, it kicked me into getting some girl singers onto this record as well. We got the, what I dubbed the Ladybugs who were singing on this record. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the Ladybugs, it's a grand part of the Gold Tops, you know, featuring the Ladybugs. The Ladybugs, so, uh, yes. That came out as a single there. That was another one. Well, they're not singles. They're tasters, really, I think of them as. Um, the, the other one came out. Uh, we Did Nothing, which is a kind of devastation song, really. I mean, it's not a pretty sight. Um, and now another one, It Mattered to Me, is is going to be bouncing out. I think that's that's going to come out on the 18th or something of August. And then the record is September the 8th. The whole album is September the 8th. But that's the modern way they seem to do this. They keep putting out taster tracks these days. It's disconcerting. Yeah. Right? It's rather disconcerting, but, you know, it, there it is. That's the way things are done. They, they, like to, they like to drip it out. And a track, Cannabis, which is, um, is this your your hot nod to David Peel by any chance? Or were you just feeling, <laughs> <laughs> were you just feeling kind of nostalgic for, for the... Um, Good times. 
Well, no, the, you know, it, it was just that um, it's a song called Cannabis, but the word only appears once. The rest of the song is kind of uh, on the edge of surreal, but it's, it's, it's basically what you want to hear if you go into a Holiday Inn in an obscure part of America and you wander in the bar for a drink and there's hardly anyone there and there's a jazz band playing a song. Oh, oh, oh. Cannabis, much maligned <laughs> by ill informed prohibitionist. It's a jazz tune, the longest list. I've nothing else ever known. And I wrote it as a jazz tune and we played it like that. Of course, it's got more rock and roll in it because it's, it's white guys, you know, aren't jazz musicians per se. And so it's you know, it's a, it's a song. <laughs> it just popped out of me, and it came. It just sounded so beautiful, and I thought, well, should I shy away from that? And I thought, no, no, I won't shy away from it, um, because I wrote a song and released it called Nixon's Rules, which is about Richard Nixon's seventy-one speech that the British are still obeying to this work day. Right, you know, a war, a war on people thinly disguised as a war on inanimate objects, none of which are as damaging as uh, the drug we, we revere and we celebrate, alcohol, the most dangerous drug I've ever put in my system. And like a lot of people from the 70s and I, 60s, I've, I've taken a lot of various drugs. And that is scientifically the most dangerous drug you will ever put in your body because it's a neurotoxin. You immediately tox toxify yourself. Thank God it's legal. You know what you're getting. It's in a bottle. You consume it in a legal drug consumption facility known as a pub. It's vetted by the government. That is the only way to do things properly. But Britain is a punishment-addicted country. America's still wrapped up in it, although it's breaking down in America. So putting out songs like this is the right thing to do, to basically go, you know, two fingers are vile, punishment-addicted government, absolutely, are willfully ignorant uh, officials. Yes. Labour and, and, and uh, Tories, blood on their hands, you know, criminalising black people. They're still doing stop and search that is directed at people of colour because the war on drugs came out of racism. And for these people to still uphold it and enforce it is disgusting. It absolutely is. And it's a failure. There's more drugs than ever out there than ever before. More tainted supplies. And it's disgusting that we're doing it and any government is still doing it. You know, it really is. So to, to come out with songs like this should be done if you feel yes, like ab it. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's not making a real judgment call. It's just I'm, I go into some surreal lyrics, almost part of the effect that you might have if you're stunned, really, and playing with words. It's what I've always done, play with words anyway. John yes. Lennon once said, it's, it's just playing with words, man. Absolutely. I mean, it really is when you come down to it. Um, but there's a lot of depth behind the words. They mean things to people. They have an effect. But for me as a writer, I'm playing with words. That's yes. my first angle of approach. Because the, the first two songs on the album, you know, are really strong and are fantastic. The music of the devil and grand scheme of things as well. So, you, you know, it's a beautifully segued album, you know, nicely selected. It's got a great balance and it finishes with Since You Left Me Baby, which is a real nod to your, I don't know if it's a nod to your sort of, I don't know, pub rock days. I don't know. Yes. It... David, you're right on a lot of counts there. And since you left me, baby, when I hear that, when I heard it in the studio, I thought, this sounds like Graham Park in the room in 1978, really kicking it up on stage. That's yes. exactly what it's like. It's like, well, where did that come from? I mean, uh, you know, it, it's perfect. Thank you very much.
So I'm, I'm, you know, all your uh, um, your assessments there are very bang on. Actually, they're very good, and that that's definitely what that is. Thank you for for seeing what that is and seeing what other songs are. No, know? it's it's a ton. But also, we loved archiving during the, um, the 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 lockdown of this decade. So you also brought out this collection, didn't you? The Middlesex demos as well. So whose oh, idea? Yeah, yeah. How whose idea was that? Your idea or a, a label that you were signed to? No, no, that's out on my website where I do what I call peripheral records. Often fans send in something live solo, and I think, bloody hell, that's good. And my website master, who runs the whole thing, you know, he said, yeah, let's put it out. And I'm like, I, or I say, let's put it out. Do you want to put it out? So we do. That is from my pre-career when I had a deal um, briefly for a couple of years in the in the 70s after I came back from Morocco with a with a, a publishing company called uh, Tower Bridge Music. And uh, one of the guys had a recording studio, so that was my first insight, my first experience of recording. So this is like four years before my career. And so we recorded a lot of new songs I had. Some of them were very good. I mean, they were, they, they all showed promise, but they weren't what I became, a, you know, a year or so later when I wrote the Howling Wind songs, and I really kicked into gear then. I, I thought by then I was ready for prime time. Yes. By then, I was ready to for the to have a go at it and try and get in front of the public, whatever it took. But when I did those songs, I knew I was not yeah not quite there. So they have been languishing, and they came out on a cassette in the eighties. You see, so I said to John, "Let's put these out on the website." And I found an old mate of mine who had photos of me with long hair, you know, photographic evidence. Yes, from nineteen seventy, and uh, so we used that on the cover. And, uh, you know, it's it's a fun little thing on, on the side. But having said that, there's a couple of songs on there that I think are, uh, you know, I could redo them, actually, in a modern modern band setting or something, and they'd be pretty good. Yes. Actually, David Bowie did that with a lot of his... Uh, there was an album he brought out called Toy, which then didn't get released. But he reworked <laughs> some of his early stuff with a band. And, and it, you know... And and it's kind of amazing because the when you listen to the 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 original songs or the demo versions, you think oh, they're okay. Then you hear them again with a producer and a band, and you think, oh yeah, there is. It's kind of the magic of music, isn't it? What do you ever think? What makes a song amazing? Is it this or is it that? Is it that line? I mean, it's kind of boggling, isn't it? Because some songs just are there, and some think there's all the ingredients, but it's not amazing. Do you? Does that keep you awake at night? Uh, well, it's extremely bothersome, yeah. Uh, you need to find the key to unlock it. And I'm telling you, it's like Alice down the rabbit hole sometimes. It is not easy to find a key to unlock something that you know is good, but you can't make it good. And it's often to do with a bridge or dropping something into a minor chord uh, totally unexpectedly because your mind gets locked on something and you think, that you know, how can I do something with this? I know it's good, but... It's, it's it does keep me awake at night. In fact, I wake up at night, go out to the living room, you know, naked. Sorry, not a pretty sight. And I grab the guitar and I get the cell phone and 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 say, okay, what have I got in my head? What have I got? What was I dreaming of? What was it's that song, isn't it? And I find something that might be the key, and I'll listen the next day and say, nope, that's absolute rubbish. Or sometimes I'll listen and say, yes, holy mother of pearl, thank goodness. I interrupted a night's sleep to find that that little bit that lifted it 
somewhere and the bit that changed the bit that you already had that wasn't quite working. Yes. You know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of puzzles involved with a lot of songwriting. Uh, coming back to your thought about um, Don't Ask Me Questions, I've got the lyrics to that. You can tell I wrote it in one draft. <laughs> Just like I wrote it in one go. There's no, there's no, there's no other bits. There's other songs as well, a few other ones from the early records. And throughout my career, where if I found the lyrics in a book, and I've got lots of them, I kept most of those, nearly all of my lyrics. So I got stacks of them packed away in upstate New York and various attics here and there. Um, ladies, if you've got any of my books in your attic, can you please return them to me? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's an astonishing amount of, of writing goes on, as it does with anyone. I mean, now I'm writing onto the iPad. It really loses it somehow because somehow I don't care if it vanishes. You know, it doesn't matter. Yes. But when you wrote it by hand in a, in a book, in a scribble that I now need an electron microscope to see, you know, and could read it perfectly then without glasses, um, it's it's important. It's such a great thing. Well, I've been to some of those exhibitions. There was, I think, um, oh, yeah, one about the 60s, So You Want a Revolution, that had you know, lyrics by the Beatles written and, and the Bowie exhibition at the V&A. And, and again, you know, something very evocative, seeing this little scribbled little writing and sort of things crossed out and the word put in and you think, God, that's one yeah. of the most important lyrics of all time. So, yeah, um, when somebody changed two words. Yes. You know, and it's like, well, that was the bit. That was a great bit. That was yeah, it happened. Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. So you've got a tour coming up, haven't you? Both, you've done America, well, done three dates, and then you've got at the end of September and very early October, you're playing six dates around the UK. So is this a solo? Is this you solo or with a band? No, I just did solo in the US of A. This is with the Gold Tops. This is with the uh, the Ladybugs. This is a whole bit, man. I mean, catch it now because you never know what's around the corner, as I, as we always like to point out. Um, catch it. Um, it's costing me a shipload of money, so I can't I can't be doing this forever. It's we don't have big America. We don't have big American money behind us anymore, or big British money comes to that mm-hmm. <laughs> from major labels. So uh, catch it. This is going to be you know one of those tours. It's got, there's only six dates. It's ending in Dingwall somewhere at some point in London. I don't know, the 10th of October, starting in Leeds, I think, on the 25th of yep. September. So it starts on the very end if you want to give people dates at some point. Yes, I, I will. I'll put, I'll put the website or I'll put a link fantastic. to, to the yeah. website. And, um, and obviously uh, you'll have your merch store there with all your bits and pieces. Well, uh, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, there will be some merch. I, I don't go mad on merch because it's like such a pain that you've got to be your own retailer. But my uh, tour manager, who is also the guy who engineered and co-produced the, the record with me, Tuck, he's going to do the out front sound. And he's also said, yeah, I handle merch as well. So, okay, Tuck, we'll give you even more jobs to do. One guy <laughs> is doing a lot of work. Um and still, I still I'm going eight grand in debt. You know? So it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. If England's going down, baby, I'm going down with it. You know? <laughs> spend it, just spend. Come on. Yes, this is you can't take it with you, can you? Really? So no. um, there you go. But it's it's brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. And like I said, I love the new album, and I hope I hope people get a chance to really hear it live. And um, yes, I guess you'll be mixing your set with various other ones from your very long and illustrious past. Oh, yes, don't you worry. I think Don't Ask Me Questions is probably going to make it to this tour. It wasn't on the last band tour I did, but uh, there's oh, there's oldies, yeah. 
or something, another thing from Howling Wind, a bit of heat treatment. So, oh yeah, it's all in there. And, and uh, you know, a smattering, a good smattering from Last Chance to Learn the Twist. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Well, nearly apart from the emotional and fond farewells, but um, you don't need to hear that. But um, yes, a massive thank you to Graham Parker, who's got the new album that is coming out uh, September 2023. Also, the live dates, as we mentioned in the interview, starting on the 25th of September, going through to the 1st of October, starting with Leeds, ending in Camden, Dingwalls. So um, do check that out. I'll give you the website or his website in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Week. Stay safe.